Hello, welcome back to Alpaca My Bags. Oh man, this is episode four. It's going by really fast. So today on the show, we are chatting about the authenticity of travel. And we are going to use Cuba as the destination through which we frame our discussion. And we've got our first man guest today, Rashid. This has been a lady space up until now, so welcome. Hi. <laughs> Tell us something about yourself. Like, what's the best trip you've ever been on? Most um, memorable? I would say the most memorable trip would have been South Africa back in 2010. Um, I got the great fortune of going to the World Cup with a development group, and it's one of those like world events that, while Cape Town was really beautiful, the fact that the World Cup was going on took the trip to a whole other level. It's incredible. Um, so today we're chatting about Cuba because it is a unique destination for many reasons. It's one of the most popular destinations for Canadians in the midst of winter, but it's also unique because of its political structure and its history. So Cuba is one of the world's last remaining socialist countries, and its socialism certainly characterizes the country's tourism. So to start, Rashid's going to give us a little rundown on socialism in the context of Cuba. So Cuba has a really fascinating kind of history. It's a microcosm for a lot of Latin America, um, where you have a big indigenous population, and then the uh, Spanish came in, got rid of all of the indigenous people, and set up uh, a colony. The difference with Cuba was it never had natural resources like Central America did. The Spanish focused on developing Cuba as more of a place to settle. Um, and Cuba was the last stop on the way from Central America back to Europe. So Havana itself was developed as kind of like the administrative center of the Spanish Empire in Latin America. And Cuba slowly moved towards independence in the late 19th century, but the Spanish were desperate to hold on, so they fought them back. And the Americans got involved, and uh, the Americans took over the colony and gave Cuba independence in a sense. But it was more of a, as long as you let our corporations do what they want, you can stay in power. Um, so that kind of framed Cuba from about 1900 until the Cuban Revolution. So like right before the revolution, Cuban society was super unequal, where a lot of the wealth and power was concentrated in Havana, while the countryside was suffering. And like normally that wouldn't necessarily lead to a revolution. But the key thing in Cuba in the 50s was the middle class was also starting to suffer. So like Fidel Castro himself was a journalist, I think. Um, so his employment opportunities were diminished. So that gave him and, you know, all the other doctors and lawyers and journalists an incentive to kind of like, maybe we should change the way things are going here because this clearly isn't working for us. Hmm. Um, so that was kind of like the match that lit the revolution. Um, there's been plenty said about the revolution itself. But the most important thing is when they took power... Um, they nationalized all of the industries, which means that the government was then in control of, you know, say, the agricultural sector. Hmm. Um, and Room they, production. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And they would also, like, decide w what job you were doing based on your qualifications. So right. you didn't quite have as much, like, individual agency. Mm. Um, they did provide free healthcare, free education. Mm. Um, and, you know, you do your standardized tests, but once you finished your tests, it was like, oh, cool, you're going to be a mechanic now. Right. Based on how, you know, you've been trained. Right. Um, so it didn't leave much for individual Cubans in terms of... <laughs> 
uh, freedom. But uh, the the major thing that happened was... Uh, <laughs> okay, yeah. we need to address this. Well, listeners, I have a, a cat. Her name is Annie. And right now is what I call her witching hour, where she just like plays with things she finds on the floor. So that's what you're hearing in the background as we <laughs> teach you about socialism. <laughs> so if you hear us giggling, it's because Annie is being ridiculous right now at the end of this episode we'll uh we'll let her do some meowing into the mic so you can be properly introduced anyways continue um so uh castro nationalized all of the land um and that was kind of the thing that uh soured the relationship with america um and all the the wealthy landowners so by taking over the land from the people who controlled it before and the American corporations, you can kind of see where that would lead to a breakdown in the relationship between Cuba and America. Hmm. Um, so in step the Soviet Union, because it was the Cold War, and they were like, hey, we will give you money if you join our side, and maybe we'll keep some missiles there, but don't tell the Americans. <laughs> yeah. And then the Cubans were like, eh, sure, why not? Like, <laughs> we'll take it. <laughs> And part of like, that's part of the reason why the narrative about Cuba's been kind of negative in the West for so long, in my opinion, anyway. Um, where a lot of wealthy Cubans were dispossessed by the revolution and then left to go to America, mm. um, and they've been the ones pushing the anti-Castro agenda for the last fifty, sixty years, um, because they literally had like their property taken away. Right. But it should be noted they were the ones who kept the majority of Cuban society in a state of perpetual serfdom for hundreds of years. So it's, it's complicated. Yeah. Well, that was a very good historical rundown. I feel very smart now. Um, so now I'm going to come in and give you guys a little rundown of the tourism background in Cuba. So I'm going to talk first about something called apartheid tourism because Cuba is the only country in which I've heard of this like being a thing. So between 1992 and 2008, um, some hotels and resorts were opened only to foreign tourists, and this led to accusations of tourism apartheid. So the policy was reversed eventually by the Cuban government in 2008. So tourism was promoted in enclave resorts, where as much as possible, tourists would be segregated um, from Cuban society. Obviously, this was not lost on the average Cuban citizen, and the government tourism policy soon uh, started to be referred to as enclave tourism and tourism apartheid. Um, and this is they use the word apartheid because it was like a distinct separation between foreigners and locals. Up until 1997, it was illegal for a, a Cuban to interact with a foreigner. So Cubans seen with foreigners were considered potential thieves, and they were typically subject to identification checks. So Cubans were literally afraid to interact with a foreigner. Um, And this just added to the the cut-off nature of Cuban society from the rest of the world. The policy of restricting certain hotels and services to tourists was ended in March 2008. This also officially allowed Cubans to stay in any hotel, but the change also opened up access to previously restricted areas, such as Keo Coco, which is a pretty popular place for Canadians to vacation now. 
But access still remains very limited to the vast majority of Cubans who don't have access to the hard currency that you need to stay in these hotels. So there's two currencies in Cuba. One is designed for tourists and one is for locals. If you're a tourist, it's really hard to get a hold of the local peso um, and vice versa. If you're a Cuban, it's very hard to get a hold of tourist pesos. So to fast forward to today, I have some statistics. In 2017, Cuba welcomed more than 1.1 million Canadian visitors, making the seventh year in a row that Cuba has topped the 1 million mark from Canada. That's insane. Like growing up in Canada, you think, oh, like everyone just goes on vacation to Cuba. It's really true. Yeah. I think like most people I know have been to Cuba. The Cuba Tourist Board confirms that Canadian visitors are their top priority. And this is because we consistently come there. (laughs) Bottom line is we love Cuba. And to support this love, a lot of airlines offer direct flights from major Canadian airports. Um, So this just like perpetuates the constant tourism. So this raises an obvious question. And you've kind of delved into this a little bit with the history of Cuba. But why are there so few Americans in Cuba? So... The Americans put an embargo in place in the 60s after the Cuban Missile Crisis, which restricted travel from Americans to Cuba. Um, and one of the reasons uh, Cuban society was so restrictive and why they wanted to keep foreigners away was to kind of like preserve this kind of ideal socialist utopia that Castro had in mind, um, which of course, you know, wasn't necessarily ideal if you wanted to, you know, move around or own a business or express your opinion. Yeah. Um, So that made it a little challenging. One of the funniest things I found about Cuba, though, on this thing about uh, Canadian tourists is, like, I was there back in 2011 with my mom, uh, and I remember a cab driver saying uh, saying to us, he was like, you know, here in Cuba, we have two seasons, mosquito and Canadian. (laughs) laughs to himself. I was like, you know, that's it's funny. so true. And like, that was, you know, your average Cuban cab driver just being like, you know, there are a lot of Canadians here. Um, and it's funny because like, just my parents go to Cuba and it's like a running joke that Canadians like going to Cuba because it's just other Canadians. Yeah, yeah. No, it, it really, really is. Um, <laughs> there was uh, a whole thing in the 70s with uh, Fidel Castro and uh, Trudeau Sr. being kind of buddy-buddy as well, because hmm. our relationship with the stage is kind of on the rocks, because Trudeau was giving them the two fingers. Um, yeah. So he got a little more pally with uh, Castro, and I think that's where the Cuban, Cuban-Canadian relationship kind of started. Right. Um, and for those that don't know, here in Canada, this thing called winter happens for half the year, um, <laughs> where it gets really cold. Yeah, it's awful. And uh, we, we, uh, we as a culture have found that when you travel somewhere warm for a week or two, it improves your quality of life f- during the winter season. Um, you can try to achieve a bit of a tan, which will be ripped away from you within a week of returning. But hey, you tried. So, yeah, I think that's kind of the main reason you end up with Canadians down there. Is <laughs> yeah. It's really cold in the winter, and part of being Canadian is pretending like we're not Americans, and <laughs> we uh, we enjoy heading to a place where we're the <laughs> main pasty white folks, I guess. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so Obama famously lifted the travel restrictions to Cuba for Americans, 
Um, and that actually opened it up a little bit. And like, I know from the travel forums that I follow, like a lot of Americans were taking advantage of that and trying to go. Um, but these were reinstated by the Trump administration. So now, again, not a lot of Americans. Um, they can still visit, but it's complicated. I know from Americans that we met there, they usually will have to fly into Central America and then get a connecting flight. And they just have to find a way to like get out enough money to use there because they won't be able to access their banks. So yeah, Rashid, explain how we were welcomed by Cubans and how they identified with us because that was like an ongoing theme throughout our travels in Cuba. Yeah, I mean, you kind of you kind of get this all over the place as a Canadian traveler where you're like, oh, I'm Canadian. Oh, you're Canadian. That's amazing. Um, but it, it felt so much more powerful and genuine in Cuba because of, I think, their relationship with America, but also the fact that, uh, in general, Canadians have a pretty good reputation abroad and were, like, generally kind and, like, courteous. Mm-hmm. So I think because, as Canadians, we would treat Cubans really nicely as a whole, um, they view us positively. Um, and I also think because... Canadians have been traveling specifically to Cuba since the 70s, and Cuba had an especially tough time economically in the 90s after the Soviet Union fell, when they kind of pulled all their money and they were like, yeah, we don't have money for you anymore, sorry Cuba. So Cuba became like profoundly poor. So Canadian tourists bringing in something like yeah. something as simple as a toothbrush. Like even today, you're advised to take you know little items you find at a dollar store because they're so hard to come by in Cuba. Um, so I think that's also a big part of it is just the numbers of Canadians year after year bringing like common household items to you know the serving staff at the resort of Veradero. Yeah, here's where I'm gonna add a little anecdote from when we were in Cuba. We were out late one night. We were at like some sort of cave party. Most people were drunk around us. And I'm addicted to Burt's Bees Lip Trap, as I'm sure many of our listeners can relate. And so I brought like five Burt's Bees Lip Traps with me on this trip. And um, I was just like, you know, like had my buzz on, was just using my lip trap outside the cave. And this Cuban dude comes up to me and he's like, is that Burt Bees? And I was like, yeah, man. And he was like, will you trade me? And I was like, trade you for what? And he was like, my sandwich. (laughs) And I'll never forget, like, looking over and seeing Rasheed just, like, staring. And I was, like, trading my Burt's Bees lip trap for a sandwich. It was beautiful. But, yeah, it's a commodity. That's one of the fascinating things you'll come across in Cuba is... um, how even still today it's a bit of a time capsule like you'll walk into a store and like the items available to you as a consumer are far more limited than we would be used to here Mm -hmm. um where it's you know that it's it's the old joke of uh communist countries where you walk in you're like oh could i get laundry detergent they're like yes there is state brand you get this and this is all you get one type yeah and this is a good segue into the next portion of this show we're going to talk about authenticity because i think it's that like old school feeling of cuba like cuba being stuck in time that draws a lot of people to cuba and i'm really interested to talk about this in the context of influencer culture because mm. there's a huge instagram community of people who go there just to shoot photos like looking like it's the 1950s so first i want to talk about two main factors that i've thought about 
about our experience and why we think that we had a uniquely authentic experience, which is debatable. But like these are two main factors that I think differentiated our experience from a lot of other people. We chose to travel independently. So we stayed in homestays. Uh, I stayed on a resort for like three or four days, but afterwards, like strictly homestays, which is different because the majority of visitors to Cuba end up staying in like an all-inclusive resort. Um, And so in a sense, we were rejecting the history of apartheid tourism because we really tried to get into like actual Cuba and stay with actual Cubans and, and give money to Cuban businesses. The second thing I think that differentiated our experience was that we actively engaged with Cubans and we traveled, and this is like air quotes, off the beaten track. We were subjected to the realities that Cubans are subjected to. Um, so for example, we like we had to wait in hour-long lines just to go to the bank and get out some pesos. And like we weren't shown any favoritism. We were standing in the same line. We were completely cut off from communicating with the outside world. So no Wi-Fi, which like for a millennial from North America is very jarring, especially like when your backpacking has relied on Wi-Fi. It's quite a change to adjust to like not having internet access. (laughs) Um, And this is where the socialism factor comes in, because we certainly experienced Cuba as socialist. Um, And a lot of that experience was based on the fact that we had to adapt our backpacking style in Cuba. So, for example, we relied on an actual travel guidebook rather than the Internet. And I always think about like when we would meet other travelers and want to meet up with them in our next like city that we were going to. And you and I would like open up our travel guide and choose a restaurant and be like, meet us here on this day at this time and it worked but like millennials like we've never had to do that yeah like i remember mentioning that to my parents when i got back and the first thing they said was well yeah that's how it always was how do you think we did it i (laughs) know my mom's like throwing me shade she's like yeah i traveled like half the world like that (laughs) no internet um taking shared taxis And like kind of hitchhiking in a sense, like you would pay, but you'd be flagging people down for drives. Um, And that's part of the like kind of like sharing economy. We stayed in homestays, so we were always in people's houses. Uh, It was really interesting to see like some people were trying to create a hostel, but like from what we heard, it wasn't really a hostel. Yeah, the uh, CASA system kind of plays off of the dual economy, which Cuba had to shift to in the 90s to deal with the fact that there was no more money from uh, the Soviet Union. So they, you know, it's a very slow process, but they've allowed more and more people to open up private businesses. So our trip was kind of through these informal private businesses. They're known as CASA Particulars. Um, they're essentially bed and breakfasts, um, and they're run by, you know, private individuals. Um, one of the more fascinating aspects of those I found was at our first casa in Havana. And let it be known that I I don't speak Spanish, nor does Aaron. Um, and Cuba, unlike many other Latin American countries, like English is not really a thing. Um, like you gotta know your Spanish to get around, um, or at least have like some level of like 
comprehension in Spanish. Mm-hmm. Um, so I remember like fumbling through words with my casa mama being like, We're going to Vinales, going to Vinales in two days. <laughs> we don't know where to stay in Vinales. Where can we stay? And she pulls out this like essentially phone book that has like handwritten numbers of every casa in every town in Cuba. And she would call ahead to the next casa mama and say, you know, I have uh, Erin and Rashid and they are coming to <laughs> stay with you and here's their information. And then you get to the casa in Vinales and then your casa mama there sorts you for your next casa wherever you're going next. So they've kind of created this like network. little informal network because at the end of the day, like I think people themselves, like they're ingenuitive and they'll find ways to help each other work within a system. So for the Cubans, it was one of those, like, yeah, we're going to help each other within this, like, informal bed and breakfast system so that we all benefit from it. So it kind of, like, pulled from their socialist leanings, mm-hmm. where it's like, it wasn't really about competing against each other. It's more, you know, we have these tourists who want a more authentic Cuban experience. They want to actually be living with a Cuban family and experiencing Cuban life. And we're going to streamline that experience for them. And we have this network of people that are going to facilitate it. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting you bring that up, too, because the one time that we failed to secure a casa for our next place, we ended up walking down a street and literally knocking on doors and everyone was full, but they would just step out onto the porch and they would just yell down the street like in Spanish, like, do you have a room? Who has a room? And eventually we were sorted out. It's just a community effort and everyone's out there to support each other, but also to support us. Like people were so kind and willing to help us. So more about our experience there would include the very, very slow approach to anything that's service oriented. You get very accustomed to this, but like you cannot expect anything to happen on time or like quickly at all. And a really interesting thing is that, like, obviously, there's no McDonald's, no Burger King, no Starbucks. You literally eat, like, rice the entire time. Although, I will say, and I was pretty fortunate in this sense, where I went in 2011 and then again in 2016, um, the difference between 2011 and 2016 alone in Cuban culture and with Cuban cuisine was profound. Like, in 2011, I remember there were no restaurants. There were no restaurants for tourists. And the culinary scene when we went was actually kind of impressive. I did find it interesting that in the five-year period, internet happened in Cuba. Where in 2011, no one had smartphones, and there weren't Wi-Fi zones. But in 2016, it appeared as though smartphones had found their way into the market, and the state had set up what were known as Wi-Fi zones. Mm -hmm. So there's public Wi-Fi in every city, but only in the central square of every city. So you have to, you know, if you're if you pitch up in Trinidad, you just gotta like walk around a bit until you see its square full of people on laptops and iPhones (laughs) and iPads. Like I'm I'm not kidding. In the middle of a city, you'll know where the internet is. It's very, very obvious. There will be hundreds of people on their laptops in a public park. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's, it's wild. Yeah, and like another anecdote, we of course like stumbled across this for the first time in Havana. We had actually gone into Cuba assuming we would never have internet access, but when we came into this park, like I remember you turning to me and being like, 
do you notice what's happening here? I was all aloof, like, with my camera, and you were just like, look around you. And I looked around, everyone was on their laptop, and we were like, oh my god, internet. And we were like, we need to try, like, let's just see if we can get on this internet. Um, I was like, I need to text my family and tell them I'm alive. <laughs> and so... So we start asking people and everyone is just talking in Spanish at us. So we can't really figure out what they mean. Eventually they direct us to this shop and we have to line up to buy basically like a government issued card that gives you a code to log on to the internet. Um, the line is about like two hours. So we're like, no, that's a no go. But then we're walking through and I don't know how we figured this out, but we talked to someone eventually who pointed in a direction and was like, look for the person with the bucket. And we were like, okay. <laughs> we wander and then we see the, this like young couple and the guy has this big blue bucket on his lap. And we just see all these people like going up and they seem to be having transactions with this person. So we're like, okay, let's just go ask. And like really shifty transactions, like it drug dealer shifty. and apartheid stuff. Yeah. We went up and we were like, internet? And they, the guy just like pulls out this card and we're like, Quant, Quanta Costa? <laughs> and he tells us the price and we're like, okay. And so we got illegal internet access. And a quick side note, uh, anyone who speaks Spanish and listening to this, uh, as you can see, Aaron does not speak Spanish at all. I don't. Um, I knew French growing up and it's similar enough to Spanish where like, on my first couple days, when someone would speak to me in Spanish, my auto response would be in French. Um, and I'm of mixed descent. Like my dad's African, my mom's European. Um, so I look a lot like a Cuban would. So I remember when Aaron got to Havana to meet me, she was like, you're dealing with the Spanish stuff. You're dealing with the speaking. You're talking to everyone. I can't do this. It's all on you. And I'm just like, um, I, 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 uh, okay, I, I, I guess. But by the end of the trip, um, I remember going up to the bar and being able to order bottles of rum for Cuban prices in Spanish. So I guess and it that, may have worked out. That's an accomplishment. <laughs> we were aiming for this the entire trip. It was like our goal. Like before we leave Cuba, we need to get the Cuban price for a bottle of rum. And we achieved it. <laughs> it's little things. So I think now is a pertinent moment to bring up one of the Cuban Tourism Board's mandates. I found this super fascinating. Um, so according to the director for Canada for the board, Cuba's unique environment allows everyone to thoroughly experience the Autentica Cuba, our spectacular beaches, incredible people, vibrant culture, fascinating history, and unspoiled nature all of which is particularly accessible and affordable for Canadians. I found this so fascinating, and mainly because it's referred to as the experience of the authentic Cuba. Mm -hmm. That's literally what they sell, is this authentic experience, which you know is rooted in these sort of like stereotypical representations of Cuba, which in our experience was really only Havana and Veradero. What would you say? I um I think it links back to a bigger discussion about the notion of authenticity when traveling. Um, where 
you can it doesn't have to just be cuba but anywhere you go that's got the sun and the sand you kind of have a couple choices right you either go to the resort or you don't when you go to a resort you're almost guaranteed to be getting a curated version of the country you're intending to experience if and, at all yeah and and that is kind of like built into the tourism industry from the perspective of a tourist country and I think that on that note, because of the history of apartheid tourism, it's even more so in Cuba because the resorts were literally designed for people to show up, not leave, experience like a stereotyped Cuban show and go home. They yeah. never actually experienced like actual Cuba. They were just on a beach. And it kind of links back to Cuba's dual economy as well, because the resorts and hotels and tourists are all run on the convertible dollar, the CUC currency that's pinned to the U.S. dollar, while your average Cuban in the town near the resort lives off of the peso, which is a fractional currency compared to the CUC. Um, so it means that anyone in Cuba who works at a resort ends up making far more money than, I would say, like highly educated people in society. But, you, you know, you see this all over the global south as well. Like, I remember having a cab driver in Morocco um, who was like, yeah, I've got a PhD in, like, biomechanical physics or something, mm. but I drive this cab because the tourism industry is better. Yeah. And I make more money this way. And it was just like, oh, well, that's yeah. interesting. And you notice that. Like, when we were in Veradero town, we could visibly see that Cubans living in that town who were all tied to the tourism industry had nicer homes. They had access to products that regular Cubans don't have. They had better food. Um, there's definitely an economic divide. Like, if you are working for the tourism industry in Cuba, you're the 1%. Well, and here's the thing when it, com uh, when it comes back to authenticity, though, is like, what does it actually mean to have an authentic travel experience as a traveler, right? You know, who am I to begrudge anyone for going and staying at a resort when it's the middle of the winter and, you know, you work a real tough job and all you want is to put your feet up for a week, you know? Mm -hmm. the, the last thing you want to do is deal with the hassle of, you know, casa particulars or, mm -hmm. you know, haggling with uh, taxi drivers and dealing with touts and dealing with people harassing you. You know, all you want to do is sit on a beach, drink a mojito or a Cuba Libre, and just, yeah. for, and just forget about your life for a week. Um, so if that's the version of Cuba you want, then power to you. Go for it. Totally, totally. Um... So I wanted to bring up like one of the things I noticed in Havana. And this is interesting because Havana was the first Cuban town or city that we really experienced. And I would characterize it as a sort of Disneyfication. Mm. And this is a term I love because mm. people are starting to apply it like in the tourism industry. And I find it so fascinating um, I first heard of this term in the context of Amsterdam. Oh, yeah. And the argument was that like Amsterdam is just this Disneyfication of Dutch culture. So it's just all stereotypes. It's not really representative of Dutch culture, like what you would experience out in the countryside. Mm -hmm. um, and I feel like this was so obvious in Havana because everything is a show. Anyone you see like dressed up in traditional clothing, like they are dressed that way so that they can ask you for money to mm -hmm. take their photo. The men with the donkeys, like they're just, it's their job. Yeah. 
the musicians, they're playing the same songs over and over for money. Yeah. It's, uh, especially when you stay on the trail, um, and this isn't just a Cuba thing, this is in most places you'll end up traveling to. Um, as long as you stay on the tourist path, you're going to get a curated version of whatever that country is mm-hmm. um, that's going to purely play on the stereotypes of that country. And I would hazard a guess that Southeast Asia was especially um, apparent for you. Oh, totally. But, and this is where I'm, like, you might disagree with me, but I, especially, like, as a white woman who's traveled to a lot of, like, non-white countries, I feel that I cannot ever have an authentic experience. I would argue the only, like, real authentic experience I've had in a foreign country is Holland, only because I have Dutch heritage Mm -hmm. and I have family members there that enable a more authentic experience. Would you say that perhaps the authenticity of a travel experience is tied to your appearance? Potentially, but I take issue with that because I look European, I look Dutch, but when I'm in the Netherlands, people know I'm not Dutch. Yeah. Like, you can just tell. Yeah, like I'm, you know, quote-unquote Swahili, um, but when I was in Mombasa a couple years ago in Kenya, um, everyone would look like me, but it was very clear to anyone that I wasn't from there just by the way I would hold myself. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that I think that's part of it because like when you're when you're traveling, I kind of liken it to like a dream state um, where you know we all have our normal lives wherever we happen to be in the world, going about our you know our jobs, um, and we encounter tourists ourselves in our lived experiences at home who are just kind of floating around. And I always kind of remember that when I'm a tourist, watching people go about their daily lives while I'm the floater, being like, huh. Hmm. They're just living here like I would be in Toronto. Um, But I'm kind of like, I'm not really here. I'm only here for a moment. Yeah. I read ages ago in Psychology Today about why we tend to remember our travels so vividly. And it's because in our everyday routine lives, our brains don't imprint memories as frequently because it's all things that we've experienced mm-hmm. regularly. When you're traveling, you're in that dreamlike state because everything is new. And this is why travels have such an impact on us psychologically because we're learning the entire time. Ah, you're, everything is new. And sense. this like profoundly changed the way I thought about travel. I was like, that is why I'm addicted to it. I love the stimulation like mentally yeah. of just seeing new things. Like, humans were designed for that. I mean, we did migrate out of many places and managed to populate the whole world. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay, we're getting really philosophical. I'm going to yeah. bring it down again. <laughs> <laughs> Somehow I knew this would happen. Yeah, but, um, yeah. okay, now I'm, now I'm changing gears a little bit because I want to talk about another aspect of this, and that is influencer culture and Instagram. I'm a huge fan of Instagram, but I know it has its problems, and this is definitely one of them. Um, So there are tons of travel influencers. A big name in this is Aggie Lal. She's a Polish influencer. She has nearly 1 million followers, which is like quite an accomplishment in tourism on Instagram. 
Um, so she's one of those people who posts images of herself, but like really the account is about her looking beautiful. And she did a trip to Cuba and posted many gorgeous images of herself in Havana, like with a cigar in a vintage shiny car, looking beautiful in like a straw hat, just like so classical Cuban. And there's a market like built around this in in Havana, specifically like to shoot images like this. So while it's true that you see these beautiful vintage cars, um, you do see men smoking cigars and like women dressed colorfully. Much of that Havana is put on, like it is designed for tourism. So my argument would be that it isn't authentic. And this idea of visiting authentic Cuba is further perpetuated in travel articles, memoirs. Um, For example, the travel site Don't Forget to Move sells a guide that they claim teaches you how to have an authentic Cuban experience while there. So I guess like my thesis here is that there is a tourism industry around this idea of authentic Cuba, which is literally driven by their own tourism board and then perpetuated by influencers on Instagram who go there, like just pop into Havana, rent a beautiful car. And I'll note that like the cars in the rest of Cuba aren't that shiny and beautiful. Like these cars look that way for photo Mm -hmm. shoots. That's their design. So what do you think about this? I think it's fascinating. I think it comes back to how we as travelers approach our trips where the kind of question i was left with uh when thinking about cuba again it was so are we as westerners projecting our own ideals onto cuba as we're going there because when my mom talked to me about going she said you know i want to see cuba before it changes Mm. um and there was like a german girl we'd met at one of the casas and she said the same thing she you know i came here because i wanted to see Cuba before it changes. I wanted to see an authentic socialist country. That's what everyone says. And yeah, that has been, that's why people, it's not why everyone goes to Cuba. Plenty of people go there again because you just want to put your feet up for a week and it's super affordable for Canadians. Mm -hmm. But there's a new category of tourists. And this is something, again, it's picked up over the last five to 10 years in Cuba. Like when I was there in 2011 versus 2016, it was night and day in terms of tourist numbers. There are way more people going there now, especially from Europe, and especially to see it before it changes. Yeah. And that that, that fascinates me. And I don't think it's a uniquely Cuban thing. While Cuba itself is kind of like a fascinating, kind of like frozen in time place, there are many of other places in the world where people still apply that same kind of mentality to it. I want to go yeah. there and see it authentically. Myanmar. That's a big one. But the difference is that the Burmese government doesn't market that as a reason to visit Myanmar. I think that Cuba is authentic because they've literally realized it themselves Mm -hmm. and know that they can capitalize Mm -hmm. economically through their tourism Mm -hmm. on this element of their country. Yeah, because Cuban culture itself... And I, I really do credit, um, of all things, like uh, a CD and album and a documentary by this uh, group called Buena Vista Social Club in the 90s oh, yeah. <laughs> that popularized Cuban music globally. Yeah. Um, and Cuban music itself is, and you know, anyone who's been there knows, it's this like perfect synthesis of Spanish guitar and African rhythm. It is, it is the most beautiful, it's some of the most beautiful music in the world. Um, and it's twinned with, not, with a very particular style of dance called salsa that is authentically Cuban. Mm -hmm. Um, So Cuban culture itself is 
very, very unique and very strong within the context of uh, the Caribbean, because um, Cuba is the biggest island there. It's got the most people, and uh, that's kind of allowed it. And it's and because it's an island, it's allowed it to kind of develop itself internally without too much influence from outside. And the Cubans themselves, I found they're very they're very proud, very proud people, very proud of yeah. their culture. And yeah. it, you know, you find this around the world, but. The Cubans, they were very proud. Yeah, and they wanted to show, show it off to you. It was all about, like, no, like, I want to show you how good Cuba is. Oh, totally. Um, we I, were exposed yeah. to, like, so much Cuban music yeah. because they wanted to show us yeah. their music videos. And I'll never forget, like, cabs always had a little video machine. Mm. So you'd be in the car and they'd be, like, showing you... Cuban oh, music videos. It was uh, Gente de Zona. Um, they're a Cuban, yeah. and they were played everywhere. And they had these yeah. like mid two thousand style music videos where it's like dudes in oversized shirts with like SUVs like on the like uh, you know beachside promenade. So it like looks yeah. like a, like a rap video shot in Miami. Okay, this is what I'm gonna argue. Then I think that there is still an authentic Cuba. But I don't think it is the Cuba that Cuba is in marketing. For sure. For sure. For because sure. we definitely experienced a different Cuba from what they sell to you. For sure. Um, and I think like my experience in particular um, helps uh, back up this argument because Erin spent her first few days on resort. Um, I flew straight to Havana Um and like, I'd been to Havana before, so you, you know when you go back to a city and it's kind of like you, you catch up with that ghost of yourself, mm. which goes back to the like traveling weirdness thing. So I spent, you know, 17 days backpacking going from casa to casa. And on our last day, we go to Veradero, which is like the renowned national resort. Um, but going to Veradero and seeing them selling this like authentic Cuba... I remember one of my first comments to Aaron was like, yo, you know, everyone who's who's here right now, when they go back home, they're going to be like, I went to Cuba. <laughs> they didn't actually go to Cuba. Yeah. Because Veradero is essentially an island off the coast of Cuba anyway. It's, it's, and it's a microcosm. Yeah, like it's connected to the mainland by like a thin strip of land. Uh-huh. Like it, it's... It, it's almost like. Um, Do you think that was by design? Like I when think during so. apartheid? Well, well because um, the fr- like I, I remember the, the first resorts they were showing us. The first resorts there yeah. were built in the Soviet era. Yeah. You can still see them. They were like, crumbling in the distance. These like pastelly Soviet chic architecture that you know obviously sun and sand wasn't so good to it. Mm-hmm. Um, but they, they I think it was purposely designed as kind of like this like add-on to Cuba. Totally. And now that you're saying this, when I think about going to the resort, it took forever Mm -hmm. because you fly into Havana and then it's like an hour and a half Mm -hmm. and you're just driving out in the middle of nowhere and all it is is resorts and you are completely cut off. And it plays plays back on the tourism apartheid thing where Cubans up until 2008 weren't even allowed to travel within Cuba and stay at hotels in their own country. Yeah. Um, So... It, 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 it again goes back to that like comment I couldn't get out of my head, which is, you know, everyone who's at the resort right now is going to go back home and be like, yeah, I went to Cuba. Mm-hmm. Did they? I mean, yes, yes, you went to Cuba. It stamp mm-hmm. on your passport. You were there. Yeah. But there was two different Cubas to experience. Yeah. And neither one's better than the other, but there's definitely two different Cubas. Yeah. So the future, the future of tourism in Cuba. I did a little bit of research. This is what I found. It's obviously expanding quite a lot. 
many Europeans now are making the trip, which is pretty new. It used to be like mostly Canadians. So the Cuban government is aiming to have 224 new hotels completed by 2030. That is a lot of new hotels. Tourism developments are occurring in every region of Cuba, which is interesting because it used to be very centralized to specific locations, but that'll enable people to travel more extensively around Cuba, mm-hmm. which will inevitably change the the scene of tourism there. Yeah. So the interesting thing about uh, opening Cuba up in that way is, in theory, it means more opportunities for people. Like, even between 2011 and 2016... There was something like there were a hundred new restaurants in Trinidad alone wow. in a five-year period. So the, way, like the, the that opens up space for your your average individual. Like we we made a really good friend in Cuba, this guy um, Alexis Marcos. Yeah, and he ran his own little bar that um, was just kind of like set off from his house on the road on this like gravel path up to the cave party the infamous cave like you have to like walk up this like sketchy gravel path up a mountainside past some like garbage dump and then wind around to get to the entrance to this cave so his bar was the last stop in town on the windy path towards the cave very strategically Um, located so there was a smart businessman i think that the first night we walked by and you know he's hustling us in cuban or in uh, spanish and you know we go over and i noticed he had he was wearing a toronto raptors hat Uh and that was like a cue for oh okay you've experienced canadians before and um we then had a conversation about basketball players in broken Spanish, where I would literally say, Kobe Bryant, and he would say, yeah, yeah. or C. Sí. And then he would say, like, LeBron James, and I would say, C, sí, or Bueno, or like, whatever. Like, it was just like the most fascinating conversation where you're just yeah. using the name of an athlete. Anyway, he um, ended up getting us to flag down tourists for him because yeah. we spoke English, and he was like, "Look, I'll pay you in mojitos all night, yeah, and I'll just give you free mojitos." And Aaron and I would stand outside of this like little little bar on the way, like, and there would be like all night groups of tourists heading up to the cave party, and we'd, we'd just flag them down, like, "Hey, we speak English, we speak English, yeah. we're not trying to hustle you." The drinks here, <laughs> but really, we are. But we are. The <laughs> drinks here are cheaper than the cave. We were at the cave yesterday. The cave is sick. Like, trust me, the cave is definitely great. Go, to the, go cave, to the cave, but have, the cave. have a drink first. Have a drink here first. It was, it was one of his best nights. Like, it was, it was great. It worked. Yeah, I love how he outsourced his labor to us. <laughs> he was to like, foreigners. We'll, "We'll give you free mojitos," and you know, us the us as the foreigners. Like, I also yeah. love how we managed to like arrange this arrangement with like this language divide yeah yeah (laughs) it somehow was clear to everyone involved what the arrangement was and this is like to draw it back to authenticity i feel like maybe it wasn't like quote-unquote authentic but i do feel that in cuba we were more immersed Mm -hmm. in the culture like i interacted with more cubans than i typically would as a traveler in a foreign country. Well, like our, our friend, Alexis Marcos, the next day, he offered to take us around, um, like, the in Trin- like near Trinidad, there's, like, a hot spring or something, or a waterfall. Yeah. Um, and you can take a horseback ride there, but, you know, we'd already done that. Um, so we didn't really want to do a horseback ride. He's like, oh, no, like, I've got a friend, and he'll sort out, like, we'll get a car, and we'll drive to these waterfalls. They're beautiful. Um, and like both Aaron and I are seasoned travelers. So our first thing was like, okay, like we've had our fun, you know, we hustled for your bar, got free mojitos, but like, clearly you want something. Yeah. We're going to have to pay for this. We're going to have to pay for this. Like something's (laughs) going to happen here. Um, so we're suspicious, but you know, 
Turns out that was on us. So we go to his place the next day in the morning. He takes us into his house, makes like a fruit smoothie for us. And like we're in his living room. And this is like a, a, a he was he was probably my age, like 25, 26. Um, and we're sitting in his living room and it's like two chairs. It's like just concrete. No, like there's not, nothing on the walls. And it's like unfinished concrete. Yeah. And this like tiny little TV that's like not working very well. And he <laughs> has to keep like hitting it so that we can see the like grainy footage of some sports thing. I thought it was the Cuban news. Oh, that's yeah. That's what I remember. I, I, yeah. I remember seeing like sports <laughs> yeah. like stuff as well. Yeah. Um, but, you know, we're sitting in like, – and he was – he just wanted to, sh- to to show us his home and ended up walking with us all the way to the waterfall, which is like two hours away. Yeah. Um, walking back. And at the end of the day, he didn't want anything. Yeah. He, just, he was just happy to hang out with us. We were properly just chilling. We were just, like, it was one of the most carefree days of my life. And it was, it was truly, it was, it really kind of put me in my place where I, I, I'd, I'd I'd thought the worst of him, but that's more of a reflection of me, maybe, as a tourist and as a traveler. You know, as, I, as I'd said earlier, you know, whenever you go somewhere, you're the one floating around and everyone there is just living their day-to-day lives. Mm. When you come across a tourist in your day-to-day life, how do you treat them? I want to say I treat people that I meet who are tourists in Toronto really well. Mm-hmm. I think I do, mm-hmm. because I know, I know what it's like to yeah. be that. I think we're really enticing people to visit Cuba. Go like Cuba. we're selling it really Cuba, well. Cuba, like, like, <laughs> authentic or not, like you want to you want to go somewhere go. with good people. Yeah. Like Cuba's a place to be. Like go go to your go to your. Uh... I'm not much of a repeat offender. Like I don't tend to return to countries. I only return to ones that I really fell in love with. Yeah. And Cuba is one I'll be going back to. And like I went back to Cuba. Um, okay, so this is the story I need to share. We were sitting in. I think this was in Trinidad or it was in Cien Fuego. We were sitting, just hanging out, and you were gazing off into the distance, and suddenly you get up, and I'm like, Rashid, what are you doing? And he's like, oh, that guy across the square over there, I can tell he needs a light. And you ran over to him, and I was like, oh, okay, I'll be back in a sec. And then I'm watching, and you start talking with him, and then he starts like showing you something in his jacket, and I was like, what is happening? And you were there for like 10 minutes, and the whole time I was like, I don't know what's happening right now. Like, are we in trouble? Is this guy like gonna arrest us? I don't know. And then you run back, and you had like 20 cigars that this guy had given you. <laughs> And I guess they were like illegal cigars or something. Yep, yep. And they ended up being the gnarliest cigars, but I remember like genuinely enjoying them. Yeah, I I don't even know how or why I ended up with the cigars apart from he just really wanted to give them to me. It just he was so yeah. sketchy about it. Yeah. I was like, just hand over the cigars then. Because <laughs> like one of the funny things was like I did I did kind of look like a Cuban, and especially in my first couple days in Havana when I was on my own walking around. I almost never got any kind of like, attention or grief. But also part of that, I think, is because I'm male. It's not something I'm necessarily attuned to seeing. Mm-hmm. But it, it did definitely fascinate me how I was able to kind of like slip between the lines. Um, yeah. Now, my story about Cuba involves Aaron. Is, oh, no. Oh, boy. Um, so those of you that don't know, Aaron loves animals of all types, shapes, and sizes. Um, like, just, just a huge fan. And we were doing a horseback riding trip in Minneapolis, I think, and we'd stopped off at, like, uh, at a lake or something. 
Um, and Aaron spots a sheep off in the distance. <laughs> And I think the sh- like the sheep it was it was tied up to a post, but the, the 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 lead it was on was pretty long, and Aaron Aaron needed to take a picture with this sheep. For the record, in Cuba, you're generally buzzed most of the time. Everything is fueled by rum, um, <laughs> or or cerveza, uh, cristal, um, yeah, or bu- bucanero, I guess, but mostly cristal because it's a pilsner, and you want a pilsner <laughs> when it's really hot. You don't want a yeah. lager. Yeah. Um, and Aaron spots the sheep, and so you could see in her eyes she had to go and take a picture of that sheep. You see her run down in the field, and where are you going? Got her camera. See the sheep. The sheep sees her coming. The sheep starts running away. Aaron chases the sheep in a circle for five minutes as the sheep runs around, its lead shortening and shortening on its stick. Aaron with the camera trying to get a selfie. Sheep running. Aaron selfie. Sheep running. Um, for the record, on Aaron's Instagram, there's an outstanding picture of her with the sheep um, taking <laughs> it was selfie. worth the effort. Oh, it's, no, it's, it's, it's a brilliant a good picture. picture. It's such a good picture, and it actually led to a little photo series Aaron and I developed. Um, that uh, we called Aaron, uh, pictures of Aaron taking pictures of stuff, where Aaron would take a picture, and then I would take a picture of her taking a picture. So you would put the picture Aaron took, and it would be this like perfectly framed, beautiful shot, and then right next to it, there's like a picture of Aaron taking the picture, yeah. where you see her like in an awkward pose, or half-strewn, or looking kind of weird Working taking this hard. picture. Working hard. Um, yeah. <laughs> Man, so many good memories. Like, it really was one of my most memorable trips, Mm -hmm. I have to say. Well, thank you again for listening, everyone. And thank you, Rashid, for coming on. Uh, He's one of my lifelong friends, so it's really special to have him on the pod. Um, Do you want to plug any of your personal work? Yeah, um, so... Aaron and I are the co-editors of a uh, magazine, a print publication called Pressed, that delves into like, culture and lifestyle, emphasizing storytelling. Aaron's currently accepting submissions for our issue about travel and the history and ethics of traveling. Yeah. Um, and we're based out of Toronto for now, but uh, who knows, in a few years you might get one anywhere. Yep, go to www.pressedmagazine.com if you're interested in that. So just a bit of housekeeping. We would love to get you, our listeners, involved. Um, So we're inviting you to send in a voice clip. You can share with us your notable travel stories from the mishaps to the fun times, or you can share your thoughts regarding a topic that we've debated, or you can just say hi. So head over to our Facebook to record and send your voice clip via Messenger, um, and you may be featured on our show. FYI, to find our Facebook page, just search Alpaca My Bags, and it should come right up. And again, I have to remind you, if you're enjoying our pod, if you could please subscribe, rate, and review us, I want to hear any criticism you have because that will help me to do better. So yeah, if you have any comments, please reach out. You can reach me on Instagram at Pina Travels or through my website, which is www.pinatravels.ca. And you can find Alpaca My Bags on Instagram. Um, Well, thanks again for listening, folks. I hope you all get to Alpaca Your Bags sometime soon. Uh, Get at me. Let me know where you're going next. Ciao. Ha ha ha!